0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: The Presidency of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.
0: Friends and countrymen, henceforth for us there will be neither king nor tribute. For three centuries we have carried that shameful burden, that terrible stain of tyranny and servitude. The moment of emancipation has come. The bells of liberty have rung. I ask that you do your duty. Long live the Virgin of Guadalupe. Long live America. Father Miguel Hidalgo, 16 September 1810. Whereas a satisfactory adjustment, too long delayed, without the fault of the United States, has for some time been entirely suspended by events over which they had no control, and whereas a crisis has at length arrived subversive of the order of things under the Spanish authorities, whereby a failure of the United States to take the said territory into its possession may lead to events ultimately contravening the views of both parties, whilst in the meantime the tranquility and security of our adjoining territories are endangered, and new faculties given to violations of our revenue and commercial laws, and of those prohibiting the introduction of slaves. I, James Madison, President of the United States of America, in pursuance of these weighty and urgent considerations, have deemed it right and requisite that possession should be taken of the said territory, in the name and behalf of the United States the good people inhabiting the same are invited and enjoined to pay due respect to him in that character, to be obedient to the laws, to maintain order, to cherish harmony, and in every manner to conduct themselves as peaceable citizens, under full assurance that they will be protected in the enjoyment of their liberty, property, and religion. A proclamation, the 27th of October, 1810.
1: Though this is generally a subject discussed in the Monroe presidency rather than the Madison presidency, it was always my intent when I began this series to put the beginning of the Spanish-American Wars of Independence back into their proper context, as I think their exclusion is to the detriment of understanding events that did directly relate to the history of the Madison administration around the same time. So much emphasis has been placed in discussions of the Madison Presidency on the War of 1812 to the exclusion of events and movements that had long-lasting impacts on American history, some of which are still ongoing to the present day, 2022, as of this recording. Thus, I invite you to join me, dear listener, as we seek to understand the Spanish situations in 1810 and their role in the Madison Presidency. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Meredith and Dustin from the Alexander Standard Podcast for providing the intro quotes for this episode. If you haven't checked out their podcast yet, the Alexander Standard is a new podcast in the RexyPod format, which examines the successors to Alexander the Great and determines whether or not they live up to the standard of that conqueror whose empire spanned three continents. Beyond just exploring a part of ancient history with which you, like I, might not be quite as familiar, Dustin Emeritus' commentary is priceless, so I can't recommend checking this one out enough. Once you get done with this episode, you can go to their website, alexanderstandard.podbean.com, or you can search for the Alexander Standard Anywhere Fine Podcast Can Be Found. I'll also have a link in the sources section for this episode. As you may recall from previous episodes, by 1810, with both Spanish claimants to the throne, the old King Carlos IV and his son Fernando VII, being held captive by French Emperor Napoleon, who had installed his brother Joseph as the disputed King of Spain, a rival placeholder government had been established in Cadiz. While I don't want to go into too much detail with all of this, as I trust that our friends over at the Spanish Arpada will examine us at some length when they get to this portion of Spanish history. The important thing for us to know is that this was a time of unrest and instability in Spanish authority on the Iberian Peninsula, to say nothing about their colonies abroad. It didn't help that French forces started a siege of Cadiz in early 1810. Meanwhile, the far flung Spanish colonies, cut off from a central authority, had to determine what to do. As noted by historian Kerry Gibson quote, In the Americas, juntas, i.e., provisional councils began to appear, and as in Spain, they articulated a fierce loyalty to Fernando VII, though it was also clear that the opportunity now presented itself to air some long standing grievances. At the heart of the complaints throughout the Americas was the fact that many of the reforms enacted under Carlos III had caused friction between the local born Creoles and the peninsular Spaniards who had been sent to the colonies to govern. Even if the monarchy was restored, it's fairly certain that circumstances would not be the same as they had been. The demands of the Creoles were similar to those that had been issued prior to the American War for Independence, quote: "More political power, economic opportunity, and autonomy at a local level." In the meantime, they just had to determine how to proceed with keeping law in order until the Spanish monarchy was restored. As we explore their efforts to do so, it may be beneficial to take a moment to examine the basics of Spanish colonial government in the Americas. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll
2: get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
1: We've mentioned Spanish colonies in the podcast in the past, but what we've talked about have been colonial provinces, governates, and kingdoms, specifically the provinces of the Floridas and Tejas, which were in fact part of a larger province of Coahuila y Tejas, the governate of Louisiana, and Nuevo Mexico, a shortened version of the Kingdom of Santa Fe de Nuevo Mexico. The latter in particular can help us to understand the Spanish structure, for all of these were part of a larger authority known as El Varenato, de Nueva España, or en inglés, the Viceroyalty of New Spain. What is a Viceroyalty, you ask? Let's turn to historian J.H. Eliot for that answer, for Eliot explains the role of the leader of these administrative areas as follows, quote, the viceroy was to be the alter ego of a necessarily absentee ruler and the living mirror of kingship in a distant land. Generally drawn from one or another of the great noble houses of Spain, a viceroy crossed the Atlantic, as befitted his rank, accompanied by a large entourage of family members and servants, all anxious for rich pickings in the New World during his tenure of office. His arrival on American soil and his passage through his territory to the capital city was as carefully staged a ritual event as if the king himself were taking possession of his realm each new viceroy of New Spain would follow the route to the capital taken by Hernán Cortés. The first two viceroyalties established were those of New Spain and Peru, and ultimately they would be joined by those of New Granada in what is now northwestern South America and southern Central America, and Rio de la Plata in southern South America. When Carlos and Fernando were taken prisoner by Napoleon, the viceroy of New Spain was José de Ituraguerre, who was receptive to the demands of the Creoles. However, the Spanish elites in the area decided that this was a dangerous prospect, and thus replaced him with Pedro de Garabe, who was more aligned with the Central Junta in Cadiz. Though those in the Americas saw themselves as equal to Spanish citizens on the Iberian Peninsula, when the Central Junta sent word to the American colonies to send delegates to join them in Cadiz, the number of delegates was quite disproportionate to those that were to be chosen from Spain itself. At a time when this questionably valid government could use every ally it could find, it slighted the still loyal and solid colonies. This was a mistake they would come to regret. The Creole elite, referred to as criollos, by this point, quote, were wealthier and more cosmopolitan than previous generations. Quote, some had studied and traveled in Europe, they adopted continental fashions. To some extent, Mexican high society had, like that of Spain, become Frenchified through tastes acquired with the bourbon accession to the Spanish throne. This did not, however, mean that they weren't also influenced by events and movements in other parts of the Americas. Naturally, they had heard about the American and Haitian revolutions and saw populations smaller than that of New Spain triumph over strong European imperial powers. The Criollos felt, at the very least, that they should be equal to the elite peninsulares who came from Spain to govern the Viceroyalty, but some felt that they should go even further and replace the peninsulares at the top of the Viceroyalty's social structure. Though it hadn't been too pronounced prior to the beginning of the second decade of the 19th century, there had been occasional outbursts of rebellions, primarily based around local issues and primarily distant from the more urban centers of New Spain the rural areas of the Viceroyalty were populated primarily by the indigenous peoples whose lands the Spanish had conquered centuries back. While some had largely been left alone and lived much as they had prior to the conquest, some were occasionally spurred to push back, but these uprisings were ultimately suppressed, some rather brutally. Further, because they primarily involved native peoples and are lower-class individuals, The Criollos did not see common cause with them, and thus, did not aid in these efforts. In 1799, however, a group of Criollos started developing a plan of their own to rebel against the Viceroyalty's government, but their plot, dubbed the Machete Conspiracy, was quickly discovered. The government sought to keep the matter quiet in order to avoid causing further unrest amongst the larger Criollo population, so the arrests were made in secret and eventually some of the plotters were released, though others died in custody. As noted by Meyer, Sherman, and Deeds in their book on Mexican history, quote, the leniency toward rebels, including some Indian conspirators in 1801, suggests the crown's concern with the festering discontent in New Spain. Ironically, royal forbearance served only to underscore Spain's impotence. The weak response did little to discourage further plots. The mainland of New Spain was not the only place in Spanish America experiencing uprisings and disturbances, however. This period of political instability also fueled a growing trend of rebellions of enslaved populations in Spanish colonies, in particular Cuba. Given its close proximity to what became the nation of Haiti, it is not surprising that enslaved people on that island should start to agitate against their oppressors. As noted by historian Ada Ferrer, a number of conspiracies were uncovered and potential rebellions repressed in the late 18th and early 19th century. Two in 1796, one in 1797, at least five in 1798, then one each in the years 1802, 1803, 1805, and 1806. The year that the Peninsular War began, two more plots were uncovered in 1809, and by the time you get to 1811-1812, that number had multiplied to six. Ferrer describes the situation as follows quote, It was as if slavery itself were a kind of permanent standoff, a war averted only by another kind of violence, another kind of terror. Meanwhile, a revolution started in Buenos Aires on May 18, 1810, which led to the founding of the Primera Junta, a provisional government that would be expanded towards the end of the year to include representatives from other areas of the Rio de la Plata. The Primera Junta, claimed to be governing on behalf of the royal authority, but as it evolved into the Junta Grande and time went on, independence seemed to be the ultimate goal of this movement. A few months later, on September 18, 1810, a meeting at the Cabildo, or City Hall of Santiago, in what is now known as Chile, was held as called by the latest governor of the area in order to resolve issues that had arisen throughout the year by a growing call for autonomy from Spain. The meeting did work to resolve the issue, but not as the governor may have intended, as the Juntanistas, those in favor of autonomy, took control of the meeting and proclaimed a new national government, though they continued to profess their loyalty to Fernando Siete. As in the Rio de la Plata, the first junta would before long give way to other governmental structures, and the voice of the royalists would increasingly fade. One of the independence movements around the same time, however, has its roots in events that we've covered in the podcast previously. We've discussed in past episodes how our old friend, Francisco de Menanda, had been working for over a decade to foment rebellion in the Viceroyalty of New Granada to no avail, though he actually got an expedition to what is now Venezuela in 1806, even if it was quickly suppressed. In 1810, it seemed like Menanda's dream was finally about to be a reality for on April 19th of that year, the Captain General in Caracas, Don Vicente de Emparan y Obe, was removed from office by a local force led by José Cortés de Madariaga. Miranda, hearing of these developments in London, approached the prominent contacts he had made over the years, and he was soon joined by three emissaries from Caracas, one of whom would go on to become a prominent leader in his own right, Simón Bolívar. The British government was initially reluctant to get involved given that they were partnering with the Spanish junta, which gave way to the Cortes de Cadiz in 1810. Finally, though, the British provided a warship, the Avon, to transport Menanda from London to Curacao, and Menanda was greeted by representatives of the Caracas ruling committee upon his arrival on December 11, 1810. Other Spanish colonies in the Americas were not quite ready to declare their full independence. The town councils of Buenos Aires and Santa Fe de Bogota, declared on May 25th and July 20th, 1810, respectively, that they were still loyal to the Spanish monarchy. However, they also, quote, showed a willingness to take the reins of authority into their own hands without the intervention of any Iberian officials. In New Spain, however, there was a leader emerging for the nascent independence movement. Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla had been born into a Criollo family in 1753 and, after graduating from the University of Mexico in 1774, began to prepare for the priesthood. Hidalgo was ordained in the fall of 1778 and would start teaching at the College of San Nicola Obispo, eventually rising to become rector. Some of Hidalgo's thoughts and actions, however, were questioned as not being orthodox, and he was brought before the Spanish Inquisition in 1800, though no action was taken against him. In 1803, Hidalgo's path changed course as he accepted a position as Curate of Dolores, a small parish located in what is now Central Mexico. As described by Meyer Sherman, and Deeds in their work on Mexican history, quote, "...devoting only minimal time to the spiritual needs of his parishioners, Father Hidalgo concerned himself primarily with improving the economic potential." As the years went on, he met other folks in the area Who were interested in attaining independence from Spain in order to better conditions for folks in New Spain. With the Spanish situation on the Iberian Peninsula continuing to deteriorate, Hidalgo and his colleagues began to actively plot an uprising for early December 1810. Ultimately, though, word got back to the Spanish governing authorities in Mexico City, and on September 13th, they began making moves to thwart the uprising by searching the home of one of the conspirators. In the early morning of September 16th, word reached Hidalgo and some of his compatriots, and they knew that they had to move up their timetable before they were captured by the authorities. Thus, Father Hidalgo went to his church and did what any priest would do to summon the people. He rang the church bells. The crowd of mysticos and Indians, free people and prisoners, who assembled heard a speech from Father Hidalgo that is looked at as the birth of the Mexican independence movement. Though the exact words are not known, this speech, called the Grito de Dolores, or the Cry of Dolores, declared independence for New Spain and invited those assembled to join in the cause. Hidalgo led a, quote, motley band of poorly armed Indians and Misticos to San Miguel, finding new recruits along the way. And by the end of the day, they had taken San Miguel by surprise and without much difficulty. One town after another, Hidalgo and his band took, and by late October, he had a force of around 80,000 marching towards Mexico City. Though his numbers were great, Hidalgo's force was running low on ammunition, and the priest was hesitant to unleash what could easily turn into an out-of-control mob on the capital city. Thus, he called for a retreat. This retreat was an unfortunate mistake for Hidalgo and his force, as it allowed the Spanish military units to regroup, and by January 1811, they were taking the fight to the rebels. Finally, in March, the rebels were ambushed and captured. Many of the leaders were immediately executed for treason, but Hidalgo, as a priest, had to be processed by the Inquisition. As described by Meyer Sherman and Deeds, quote, Finding him guilty of heresy and treason, the court defrocked him and turned him over to the secular arm for execution. At dawn on July 31st, the firing squad did its job. Hidalgo's corpse was decapitated, and his head, fastened to a pole, was displayed on the charred wall of the granary in Guanajuato as an object lesson to potential rebels. While these events dampened the enthusiasm for the independence movement in New Spain for a time, there was another Spanish possession in the Americas that had already declared its independence and found a powerful partner to ensure that the Spanish would never have possession of it again. At the end of Episode 4.11, we discussed how President Madison had authorized Orleans Territorial Governor William C.C. Claiborne to send a message to William Wyckoff, Jr., a member of the Orleans Territory Executive Council who had extensive contacts in West Florida. In this message, Claiborne asked Wyckoff to, quote, go to West Florida and inform the inhabitants that the United States would welcome them if they arranged a popular convention and made a formal request for annexation to the United States. To be sure, there was a pro-American faction in West Florida at the time, but as historian Andrew McMichael points out, it's not absolutely clear how much of the sentiment was pro-US and how much of it could better be described as anti-Spanish. Regardless, both of these were significant enough to allow the events of 1810 to happen. In particular, it seems like a key center of opposition to Spanish rule developed in Bayou Serra in the Feliciana district north of Baton Rouge. A few prominent residents in the area held, quote, a series of then-secret meetings in May and June, and rumors were flying that French citizens in New Orleans were planning on, quote, raising an army and attacking the fort at Baton Rouge. On July 6th, several local leaders reached out to Governor Carlos de Haute de la Sousse, quote, for permission to hold a convention for the purpose of securing the peace and continued existence of the Spanish crown in West Florida. As we've already seen, there was a precedent for doing so, both on the Iberian Peninsula as well as in other parts of Spanish America. De la sus believing that public sentiment was by and large with continued Spanish control of the colony, agreed to allow the convention to come together. As described by McMichael, quote, Each district in West Florida sent delegates to the meeting. Some delegates wished to bring in the U.S. government, some to invite in the British, and a large faction to continue under Spanish rule. For the British and Spanish factions, the issue was not so much what to do about the Spanish monarchy, but how to handle the twin problems of the growing pro-U.S. faction and de la SUS. The convention came together in late July and was attended by, quote, some of the most prominent members of Baton Rouge society. The group of 14 included four men from the Feliciana district, five from the Baton Rouge district, four from the St. Helena district to the east, and one from the district of Tanjipaho and Chifuncte, still further east. The convention made clear to highlight that de la Sousse had called it into being, and thus it was not an extra-legal gathering. And indeed, the governor attended some of the early meetings of the convention. However, the pressure was beginning to grow for de la Sousse. Not only were broadsides calling for revolution starting to appear, with little to no support of which to speak from a larger Spanish government, the governor found it hard to make any guarantees to satisfy the request of the convention. To try to keep on the same page with the convention, in addition to having a couple of supporters report to him on the proceedings, Derlastos also invited the convention delegates to meet and dine with him on numerous occasions, and these were described as, quote, events always accompanied by toasts to Ferdinand VII, prayers for his release, and patriotic songs. As the alcohol flowed, the governor gathered what information he could to learn how to keep the convention on his side and did what he could to convince delegates to remain loyal to Spain. However, de la Sousse, while hoping for the best, also prepared for the worst-case scenario. As noted by McMichael, he, quote, inspected the artillery at the Fort of Baton Rouge, ensured that the cannons remained primed, and put the guard on alert. Meanwhile, he also requested more powder and reinforcements from Governor Fulch in Pensacola. As McMichael described, quote, The 1810 convention met 14 times without attempting to subvert the laws of Spain or to overthrow the local administration. Most likely because of the balance between Spanish loyalists and the pro-independence faction from the Felicianas nor did de la Sousse's representatives report any revolutionary sentiment among the representatives. Nonetheless, the residents mostly tried to separate themselves from Carlos de la Sousse, and a culture of deep and mutual suspicion emerged over the course of the convention. Governor Vicente Fulch in Pensacola thought that the convention was engaged in treason and blamed de la Sousse for weakly abiding this clearly seditious force right under his nose. Falsch eventually grew so concerned that he made plans in September to muster a force of 150 men to march on the St. Helena district as a security measure. De La Sousse then inadvertently made the situation worse when he wrote of Folsch's plans as well as the fact that, quote, he did not consider himself bound by any of his previous agreements with the assembly meeting in Baton Rouge in a letter that was intercepted and then revealed to the public. The convention may not have been motivated to seek a break from Spain before, but now that the royal governor revealed that he had no intention of coming to a mutual agreement and was willing to use force to get his way, their futures and possibly their very lives pushed them towards seeking a more radical form of recourse. On September 22, 1810, the Baton Rouge Convention put forward a quote, preliminary declaration of independence, resolving that de la Sousse be divested of all authority as governor of that jurisdiction. Now, it should be noted that this wasn't full independence. Indeed, the orders that were to be sent to the commandant of the militia, who it seems was already at work making preparations without formal orders, were, to enforce the laws of Spain, capture the fort at Baton Rouge, and secure the governmental archives to make safe the land records. However, this was quite a shift from a convention working hand-in-hand with the appointed governor to ensure peace and security. And for over half of the delegates, it was a step too far. All the delegates from the eastern districts of St. Helena, Tangipahoe, and Chifuncte, along with three of the delegates from Baton Rouge, resigned in protest. Still, the remaining delegates went ahead and passed the Declaration. Whether it enjoyed popular support or not, the die was cast and the stage was set for rebellion. The primary actors in this did not wait long to make their moves. Governor de Lassus was warned at 1 a.m. on September 23rd that a militia force was on its way to secure the fort at Baton Rouge, but he delayed in actually going to the fort to work to prepare a defense. Thus, when the force of around 80 individuals arrived at 4 a.m., After demanding the surrender of the fort, the rebels quickly took control of the decaying structure, with two Spanish defenders dying in the assault, and De La Sous was taken into custody. A few days later, on September 26th, the convention delegates who had issued the preliminary Declaration of Independence gathered in session once more to declare, quote, the several districts composing the territory of West Florida to be a free and independent state. This declaration was quite a contrast to the U.S. Declaration of Independence a few decades prior. Rather than grandiose language about unalienable rights and liberty, the West Floridian Declaration stated simply that they were looking for, quote, protection for their property and lives, and that the Spanish monarch was not the problem. Rather, that the lack of a monarch and a strong Spanish government threatened their well-being, so they decided to take matters Into their own hands. Without a strong commitment to independence, it was clear that they would accept whatever authority could guarantee, quote unquote, their property and lives. And there was one nearby power who was more than willing to do that. However, it would take time for word of what had happened in Baton Rouge to get around, so in the meantime, the convention had to pull together a plan, starting with who would be in charge. The person appointed to be the first executive of the West Florida Republic was actually a recent newcomer to the Baton Rouge district. Fulwar Skipwith, prior to settling in West Florida, had served as a diplomat for the U.S. in the French West Indies and in France. After marrying a French woman, he had decided to settle down in the Spanish colony. Skipwith was described by a contemporary as, quote, almost a Frenchman in his own right as noted by historian M.K. Beauchamp, quote, Skipwith possessed national connections, the confidence of the Anglo settlers of West Florida, and the ability to communicate with the Creole inhabitants of Orleans. Thus, he was chosen for this post, which would be negotiating with American officials in the neighboring territories and abroad. Meanwhile, the convention, quote, appointed a three-person committee of safety to administer the new government and formulate a constitution which will be submitted to the convention in November. The convention then adjourned on October 11th. By this point, news of events in West Florida was well on its way to Washington, D.C. I haven't been able to find exactly when the Madison administration first learned of the West Florida Declaration of Independence, but an editor's note on a letter from Madison written on October 19th notes a meeting with the editor of the National Intelligencer newspaper two days prior on the 17th about the matter. Now, an additional side note here. The editor of that Washington paper, which served as the administration's mouthpiece since the beginning of the Jefferson administration, was no longer its founder, Samuel Harrison Smith. Smith had recently stepped back from that role and handed over the reins to Joseph Gales, Jr., So it was Gales who met with the president to discuss the possibility of a U.S. intervention in West Florida. At the time, it wasn't uncommon for national and international events to be made known to the government in Washington by informal, unofficial means. But there were also a couple of official letters that had been sent from the area with the news. The chairman of the West Florida Convention had written to Secretary of State Robert Smith a few days after the Declaration of Independence to request, quote unquote, Immediate protection from the United States. Meanwhile, on October 3rd, Mississippi Territorial Governor David Holmes sent his own report on events in West Florida to Secretary Smith, along with a copy of the West Florida Declaration of Independence. Though the officials in West Florida knew that American support was critical to avoid an expected Spanish backlash, it wasn't necessarily that they were seeking annexation just yet. Indeed, Executive Skipwith sent an emissary to the Orleans Territory, quote, to delay any effort to attach West Florida to the Orleans Territory until a commission could be sent to Washington. Meanwhile, Orleans Territorial Governor William Claiborne wrote to his counterpart in Mississippi, Governor Holmes, about his concern about, quote, the presence of unsavory adventurers from the United States in the West Florida Republic's army. There is also the pesky reality that while leaders in the Felicianas and Baton Rouge supported this newly proclaimed West Florida Republic, the rest of the Spanish colony of West Florida was not quite so keen on the idea. As you may remember me mentioning earlier, the delegates from the districts east of Baton Rouge had all walked out of the convention as soon as a preliminary Declaration of Independence was put forward. This meant that the majority of what was considered West Florida from the Amite River, which now forms the boundary between East Baton Rouge Parish and Livingston Parish in Louisiana, on to the Perdido River, the border of modern-day Alabama and Florida, was still under Spanish control. The convention in Baton Rouge knew that the more territory they had under their control, the more attractive West Florida would be to the United States. Thus, they enlisted the services of a local who we had previously discussed in Episode 3.31, Reuben Kemper. Kemper and his brothers had been key figures in the West Florida Rebellion of 1804, and now that their previous aborted ambition had finally been seen through to fruition, the convention felt that Kemper, along with a compatriot named Joseph White, would be the perfect agents to send east to recruit a force to take the key port cities of Mobile and Pensacola. Kemper and White, however, proved themselves to be some of these quote-unquote unsavory characters of whom Governor Claiborne was concerned about, as they, quote, immediately set about plundering farms and plantations along the route to Mobile Bay. And it wasn't long before American forces at Fort Stoddard in the Mississippi Territory north of Mobile wrote back to Washington about the danger that Kemper, White, and their supporters posed in turning Americans who had, quote, been friends and not enemies to the people of Mobile against any interest the U.S. may have in West Florida. As a precautionary measure, Kemper and the other leaders of his group were arrested by American officials in the area. Meanwhile, back in Washington, the president had a decision to make. It does seem that Madison called together his cabinet on noon on October 16th, but I haven't been able to confirm what the meeting was about. As it was his style, we can imagine that Madison consulted with some, if not all, of his cabinet prior to committing to a course of action. By October 27th, however he was fully committed. As we heard in one of the opening quotes, Madison on that date issued a proclamation with orders to occupy West Florida. The reasons given were national security, but given that this was a rebellion that he had given his encouragement to, it was more of a fait accompli. Now, we should note here, as McMichael points out, that Madison had argued for years, first as Secretary of State and now as President, That the Louisiana Purchase back in 1803 had included West Florida. That was his legal justification for taking this move at a time when Congress, which was constitutionally speaking the only branch of government that could issue a declaration of war and authorize U.S. military forces to be used against a sovereign nation, was out of session. However, Madison also likely knew that he would be backed up by Congress in this move when its new session began. Again, from McMichael, quote, for the United States, an independent West Florida represented perhaps even greater instability than a Spanish-held West Florida. Militarily weak and isolated, the new West Florida Republic might come under further attack by filibusters from Mississippi and Alabama, straining relations between Spain and a U.S. government aimed at placing East and West Florida in U.S. hands. Likewise, the new territory might fall prey to British or French occupation, which, if combined with a similar occupation of Mobile, could force the United States to abandon New Orleans. The agent charged with carrying out this occupation was Orleans Territorial Governor William Claiborne, with the support of the commanding general in New Orleans, Wade Hampton, who had succeeded our old friend James Wilkinson when he was suspended from duty as noted in episode 4.8. Before they could receive their orders and make preparations, however, it seemed like the situation in West Florida might descend into chaos before the Americans could get into the mix. Shortly after the convention's adjournment, a mutiny at the Baton Rouge Fort seems to have kicked off, though it ended just as abruptly as it began. In order to ensure order, the convention came back for an emergency session starting on October 24th. By this point, the three-man Committee of Safety had completed its work on a constitution which was, as noted by McMichael, quote, modeled on that of the United States. And one of the first actions that the convention took on the first day of the emergency session was to adopt the constitution. The convention then made plans for popular elections as called for in the constitution, and after a few days, adjourned on October 28th. On November 10th, an election was held in the independent portion of West Florida, quote, to ratify the Constitution and to elect representatives. And only a couple of weeks later, on November 26th, the new legislature of the West Florida Republic convened in St. Francisville in the Felicianas. The formal inauguration of the new government happened three days later, on November 29th. While the officials in West Florida did all they could to maintain control, Governor Claiborne and General Hampton were making their plans. Those Skipwith, who had been elected as governor under the new constitutional government, had proclaimed publicly that, quote, it becomes our duty to provide for our own security as a free and independent state, was cognizant of the reality of the situation and worked through private channels to make sure that the U.S. government understood that he would not oppose an American takeover. When Claiborne received his instructions He sent a friend to confer with Governor Skipwith once more in order to prepare him for what was to come. Claiborne's instructions were to proceed to take possession of any territory taken by the West Florida Republic and to lean on Mississippi Territorial Governor Holmes for backup if needed. Holmes, too, was sent a set of instructions ordering him to have a militia force at the ready should Claiborne need it, though discretion was also urged on him Secretary of State Smith made sure to assert in Claiborne's instructions that, quote, should any particular place, however small, remain in possession of a Spanish force, you will not proceed to employ force against it, but you will make immediate report thereof to this department. The Madison administration realized it was walking a tightrope. They didn't want a war with Spain, which would likely then draw in either the British or the French or both. Secretary Smith also took the additional step of informing French Minister to the U.S., Louis-Marie Toulon, of the impending occupation, asserting that it was to ensure that the British didn't occupy Florida. A weak excuse, to be sure, but at this point, there was little that the French government could do to stop the United States, as we shall explore in our next episode. For now, though, with the diplomacy done, it was time to make plans for military operations. Before making his way into West Florida, Claiborne first traveled to Natchez to confer with Governor Holmes. The two decided that Holmes should proceed to St. Francisville, while Claiborne would travel to Point P, where 400 regular U.S. troops would converge and prepare to march into West Florida. Holmes arrived in St. Francisville on December 6th and shared news with leaders there of Madison's proclamation of October 27th. While Governor Skipwith was in favor of American annexation, he was concerned about it being claimed under the pretense of the Louisiana Purchase. While the details were being worked out, Skipwith and the legislature had to move that day to Baton Rouge, which had been designated the site of the next legislative session. Holmes made a detour to confer with Claiborne before proceeding to Baton Rouge, where he again met with Skipwith. The governor of the West Florida Republic confirmed that he would not oppose American occupation. And the next day, December 7th, Skipwith took Holmes to the fort to confer with its commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel John Ballinger, while Claiborne and the American forces at Point P moved into West Florida at Bayou Sarah. Three days later, they would arrive in Baton Rouge, and after a little back and forth, the bonnie blue flag of West Florida, which had only flown at the fort for a few short months, came down to be replaced by the Stars and Stripes. With that, the Republic of West Florida was no more, and Baton Rouge, the city of my birth, became part of the United States. We'll talk more about the aftermath of this action in a future episode, but I want to pause here to bring up a couple of notable points to have in mind as this episode draws to a close. First, this is a bit of a spoiler, but this will be the only territorial acquisition of the Madison presidency that will actually stick. And though it seems like a relatively small piece of territory to add to the U.S. compared to, oh, say, the Louisiana Purchase, this was also a key acquisition. With the annexation of West Florida the U.S. finally had complete control of both sides of the Mississippi River, a key artery in the body of the nation at that time, and increasingly so as the decades went on. Further, though it would take a little more time to secure Mobile, as it was part of West Florida too, it was inevitable that the U.S. would turn its eye to that key Gulf port city, especially due to its strategic position on the Mobile River. Securing the interior would depend on control of West Florida, and the Madison administration was well on its way to doing that. The ramifications of this annexation would resonate for decades to come. Meanwhile, as all of this was happening, further down the Mississippi River, between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, in an area dubbed the German Coast, due to a large influx of German immigrants in the area at one point, an enslaved man named Charles Delonde seemingly served the man who enslaved him, Manuel Andre, loyally as a slave driver. As described by historian Daniel Rasmussen, quote, "To most slaves, he, Delonde, was simply the half-white representative of the master. And to the master, he was the half-white liaison from the slave quarters. He was the central link, the connector and the enabler of the complex machinery of the Andry slave plantation. Or so it seemed. There is much more to the history of Monsieur Delonde than meets the eye, dear listener. And you and I shall explore that history in the next episode, which I'm calling Freedom or Death. Special thanks again to Meredith and Dustin for reading the intro quotes for this episode. And be sure to check out the Alexander Standard wherever you get your podcast. Special thanks also to Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. If you'd like to enlist Christian services for your podcast or audio project, check out his website at yourpodcastpal.com. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. Info on in the itinerant band, as well as the sources used in this episode, past episodes of the podcast, and links to information about all of the presidents can be found on the website, which is Podcast. that's all one word, dot com. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast, again, that's all one word, at gmail dot com. You can also connect with me on social media. I'm available on Facebook at presidencies on Twitter at presidencies89, and on Instagram at presidenciespodcast. That's right, all one word. Finally, I thank all of you for listening. I hope you found the journey through the Madison presidency as fascinating as I have thus far, and I'm so grateful to have each of you on this journey with me. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.